If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Tuesday, December the 12th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here in Hoover's Washington, D.C. office, Michael Frank. He's a Hoover Research Fellow and Director of Hoover's D.C. program, overseeing research and outreach initiatives to promote ideas and scholarship here in the nation's capital. Prior to joining Hoover, Mike served as Policy Director and Counsel for House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. He also served as a Vice President of Government Relations for the Heritage Foundation. He also completed a tour of duty as Communications Director for former House Majority Leader Dick Armey and worked for the U.S. Department of Education in the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Mike, I read that resume and I have to ask you an obvious question. Are you a swamp creature? <laughs> <laughs> I've been here for quite a while, Bill. Yes. Uh, explain to folks what the swamp is, because you hear this word <clears throat> swamp and drain the swamp. Is the swamp a physical reference to Washington? Is the swamp Congress? Is it the presidency? Is it the K Street lobby? What is it the big government? What exactly to you is the swamp? Well, one thing, it's not really a swamp so much as it's a, a hot tub. Mm-hmm. And by that, <clears throat> you look at the five wealthiest counties in America now uh, are basically suburban areas to Washington, D.C., and that reflects the the enormous uh, amount of money that flows through Washington trying to either influence what Washington does or in the distribution of those grants and programs, a lot of the recipient organizations are now located around here and they manage those those things. So basically it is a um, uh, swamp would equal all the efforts to influence the lawmakers and the administrative agencies here, but it's also uh, the people that are directly working for them or people who are hired by them to right. uh, implement what So they the do. swamp is government, but it's the business of government. Right. There's a lot of, um, as one former head of the <clears throat> two big healthcare programs, Medicare and Medicaid once described it, mm-hmm. he was shocked as when he was running these programs in the Clinton years to find how many different associations and rent seekers had grown up around every little corner of the Medicare program. And he dubbed it the Medicare Industrial Complex. And there's similar complexes for housing and for higher education, for, health, for all con- parts of health care, for uh, transportation, you name it. Every big policy field has spawned its own industrial complex full of rent seekers and people trying to Im- influence or implement different parts of that agenda. You're a law school graduate, right? You went yeah. to Georgetown Georgetown. Law? Yeah. And did you segue right into politics after that? What, what, what took you into this world? I had, I was in, I'm a New Yorker. I grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I was interested in getting uh, started in the Republican side of, uh, of politics in New York. And the only thing that was available at that time was a um, uh, position as counsel in the New York State Senate, Washington, D.C. office, which in and of itself should raise your eyebrows, as, as it just did. Yes. Because a state legislative body... Don't have, you typically have their own operations right. in D.C. Right? And other than Illinois had one, California had one, and New York had one. Where does that, it's not in the Hall of States building, is it? Or yeah, it was in the Hall of oh, States, okay. and it was um, designed to monitor things in, going on in Congress, any executive branch that would have an impact, uh-huh. say, on New York State. So if you were a state senator, as many of them were from upstate New York, and you had a lot of dairy farmers, Congress was looking at revising dairy price controls and other you know, regulations relating to dairy, we were the ones feeding them the updates and the intel on what was going on, how it might affect their constituents, and what they would need to do to influence that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the course of doing that, I was exposed to quite a few, what they were called Rockefeller Republicans, <clears throat> and I didn't like what I was seeing. I didn't think of this as Reagan-esque, and Re- Ronald Reagan is what made me... Yeah. I, uh, I, by the way, I used to work with the daughter of one, Leslie Goodman, who was right. daughter of Roy Goodman. My state senator. Right. Yeah, the heir to the ex-lax fortune. Correct. And um, uh, I was more and more uh, taken aback by just sort of how liberal they were and how much they were, in some ways, not really any different from what I rebelled against. And I had a chance to go work for Bill Bennett when he was Secretary of Education and in the Legislative Affairs Shop, and I jumped at that opportunity. And from then on, I'd pretty much been either in think tanks or uh, working for some part of government. And the years in Capitol Hill were particularly um, 
formative because we were in the middle of all sorts of major debates. First, I spent four years working on the minority side when Republicans were in the minority just before the 94 revolution, 1994. That was with Dick Armey? Uh, no, that was Bill Dannemeyer of California. Dan California, okay. And he was on the Energy and Commerce Committee and Judiciary mm-hmm. Committees. I did all his committee work for him. So we were in the middle of these massive, titanic legislative fights over the Clean Air Act and you know the Americans Disabilities Act and Medicaid expansions and energy policy. And then we had a ringside seat for the Henry Waxman-John Dingle battles, which was a kind, of, kind of these last, um, last period when it was a, a legitimate split. This was over the heart and soul of the Energy and Commerce Committee, right? Right. Right. And Dingell was, John, John Dingell was legendary from Detroit. His wife now holds the seat. The Dingell has held that seat for, what, 100 years or something well, like that? Well, 80, since 1937. 30s, right, his yeah. father. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John, John Dingell had some of the best nicknames on Capitol Hill. It was uh, Dirty Dingell, Tailpipe Johnny, because mm-hmm. he, was, he was no fan of EPA emissions. That's uh, right. For the auto industry, and Henry Waxman from California was just the opposite. So I remember this. It was a question of who ran this committee. And at all times, it was a question also of the scope and size of that committee. Mm-hmm. Because when you have the names Energy and Commerce, you can kind of claim Co- claim to anything. Commerce Clause. Exactly. <laughs> it covers almost everything. Exactly. Yes. So you so you're, had a mm-hmm. red for that fight. Yeah. And, and what was interesting there was the way um, there were really two major factions within the Democratic Party. And mm-hmm. Waxman kind of came to symbolize, in my mind, one of those, the Watergate Yes. class of 74, yes. they, t- they took a different way, a uh, different approach to politics. And the Dingell school was more the kind of the Cold War liberal school where um, they had an interesting mix of values that you might have, uh, when Dingell lobbied to get his kind of people on the committee when there were openings, mm-hmm. he ended up getting members who would support him on the industrial issues and the environmental and energy and auto sort of issues. But he might also pick up somebody who was a staunch Second Amendment supporter. Dingell himself at the time was on the board of the National Rifle Association. He would get members who were pro-life, 100% pro-life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Manton, who was a borough president of Queens in New York City, Democrat, kind of a machine politician, he got on the committee. Well, he was not only an acolyte of Dingell and supported him in all those energy and environment and so on, all those issues, but he was also a, you know 110% score on the national pro-life groups uh, indexes. So the committee had a lot of those issues coming forward, um, different aspects relating to uh, the Centers for Disease Control, National Institutes for Health, the Medicaid coverage, all these issues that related to some pro-life or pro-abortion debate. And you always had two or three or four Democrats on the committee who automatic votes for the pro-life side and one or two Republicans going toward the uh, pro-choice side. And Though the, the point being is that there was a whole lot more um, ability to form bipartisan coalitions back then right. because of that nature. Today, and I think it ended for good when, when uh, Waxman beat Dingell for the chairmanship in 2000. It was it six, mm-hmm. all right? Right. And um, in 2007, the, um, today the Democratic caucus is very unified. There's only a few aberrant voices anymore, and even they tend to get uh, put in their place whenever they raise their heads. And the same thing is true on the Republican side. There's two very different tribes now. Right. Not a lot of overlap ideologically. Interesting. Anyway. So where were you when the first, the 1994 revolution, the first of several revolutions to come in, in Congress, where were you when that happened? I was in director of House Relations for Heritage. Uh-huh. And we were in helping do all kinds of, um, we were approached by the Gingrich people <clears throat> and Dick Armey's people at the time to help assemble conservative experts to think through if there were to be something some kind of an agenda document. What would it look like? What would be the things that would get garner the most support and make the most difference? And we held, hosted quite a few of these kinds of uh, blue sky sessions to vet it. Mm-hmm. And it helped. It helped them think through their think. you know, they crystallized their thinking and come up with what eventually became the contract uh, for America. And, and then in 95, um, you know, we ha- were involved in all the different um, formation of the, the details of that contract and what would it look like legislatively and then um, toward the end of that year uh, the leader and his staff approached me about going over there so I had a chance to go work and be right in the middle of all that and I started during a government shutdown and after a 30-inch blizzard so the city was shut down and the government was shut down at the same time. Our Hoover colleague has written, uh, Mo Fiorina has written a book called Unstable Majorities. I don't know if you had a chance to mm-hmm. read it or not, but it's, it's interesting political science look at what's what's happened to politics in the past 
couple of decades, and, and it's an interesting period, Mike, in this regard, that we've had consecutive two-term presidents, three two-term presidents in a row. It's only happened once before in the Republic, and that was back in Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, but it's now mm-hmm. happened with um, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. I don't know if Trump's going to make it a fourth, but we've had three at least. So that speaks to stability at the executive level, but Congress has been Mr. Toad's wild ride. You From mm-hmm. 1954 to 1994, there was a certainty to Washington, which was what? House, House Democrats, Democrats yeah. ran the House, mm-hmm. and they had the Senate, except for the six years, the first six years of the Reagan administration. So Congress was Democratic territory. The White House would come and go, but Congress mm-hmm. was Democrat. And then in 94, we begin this series of upheavals where Republicans take over Congress. It then switches back in 06, and then in 10, the House goes Republican, and 14, the Republicans get it back. And now we're looking at 2018. And a distinct possibility that the House could go Democratic. I don't know Mm -hmm. about the Senate, but the House at least seems to be in play. You've been watching this up close for a long period of time. Why does it keep flipping? Well, I I mean, it's a. In some cases, it's overreach. I think in '94, um, that was a reaction not just to the uh, effort by Hillary Clinton, first lady Mm -hmm. at the time, to um, revamp the healthcare system, but it coincided with efforts uh, that offended people who uh, respect the Second Amendment. Mm-hmm. There were, I remember there were news reports that some of the, uh, what I guess are blue dog Democrats at the time, were um, in districts that had something like 70% of the adult males own firearms, you know, and they were supporting legislation that was easily characterized as restricting those rights. Mm-hmm. That was a problem. Um, there was a stimulus bill, uh, much smaller than the one that President Obama moved through, that was also offensive and became a, um, uh, a kind of a target for uh, pulling out line items. Was, you know, I think a water slide in Puerto Rico is what I remember. Right. That con- the government was going to fund, and when you voted for that whole package, you also voted for the water slide right. in Puerto Rico. Right. And ads were run, and, and it was an easy way to characterize the incumbent who voted for that as being very frivolous with the taxpayer dollars at a time when that was frustrating to people. So there was a whole range of, of issues where President Clinton and his very strong majorities in both the House and the Senate overreacted right. and tried to push through things that people weren't ready for or had not been vetted properly. And, um, and it was an easy way for – and it was in the aftermath of the Perot insurgency in 92 also. And it became a, um, a rallying point for just about every part of the right of center coalition. So right. some would, would latch on to uh, efforts to um, – you know, make it easier to get abortions through and use federal funds and so on for that. Other people were Second Amendment-based. Other people were size and scope of government-based. Uh, there was a tax fight at the time to increase taxes. Right. So you had all these things, co- I think, to me, coalescing then. And you had a, a chipping away at the Democratic establishment. Well, this thing called the Internet was not quite here yet. Mm-hmm. It was Al Gore had not fully invented it by that time, but you had certainly had Rush Limbaugh going on the air every day mm-hmm. and talking to millions of people and complaining about Washington. Newt Gingrich, I was a journalist here in town at the time. I remember Newt Gingrich calling and talking about Jim Wright and mm-hmm. talking about Jim Wright's sleazy book deals and right. House of uh, Ill Repute and so forth. And so there was kind of a conversation going on about it. The House banking scandal that occurred at that time. I was mm-hmm. telling a friend last night that what's remarkable in these times is that you have members now just – fleeing the scene almost the moment they're charged with something, whereas you had a situation like the House banking standard where Barbara Boxer gets enmeshed in it and she goes on to serve 24 years mm-hmm. in the Senate. So, right. uh, but you've had, Mike, in the last uh, in the cycle since 2006, these votes of no confidence against Congress. And if there's one continuum, it's everyone says we need bipartisanship, and each new president stands up and gives, takes mm-hmm. the oath of office and gives a speech saying it's time to come together for the good of the nation and I'll work with Republicans and Democrats. I you can write these speeches in your mm-hmm. sleep, you know, we just, we need good ideas. It doesn't matter where they come from and so forth. But you've been doing some homework on Congress and you've been kind of studying what makes red and blue different. So let's talk a bit about what you found in terms of mm-hmm. what distinguishes Republican and Democratic members these days. Well, it, it is, um, <clears throat> I, I became interested in this as a, just to go back a bit, about 10 years ago when I was frustrated by having known almost all the Republican members personally mm-hmm. through my work. I, I didn't see the the public accusations that the uh, Republicans were the party of the rich, country club party, that kind of thing. Right. It didn't make sense based upon who I knew and the kind of places they represented, their everything, their, their demeanors, their priorities in life, where they went on vacation, where the kids went to school, where they went to school. Mm-hmm. It just didn't jive. Right. 
So I started looking into this, and I wrote a piece. It was in the Financial Times uh, of London about 10 years ago. And the person who gave it the headline made it more attractive than it probably would, should have been. The Democrats are the new party of the rich. And it was looking at the aftermath of the 2006 election. Oh. And basically, the, looking at a lot of tax data, mm-hmm. of the 25 districts with the heaviest concentration of very wealthy households, 17 or 18 of them were held by Democrats. And of the ones that were Republican, they were always the kind of seats that were in play. You know, um, right. Chris Shays had a district in Connecticut right. that now is Democratic and will probably stay that way for a long time. Mm-hmm. That was one of the two or three wealthiest in the country. Right. Um, and he was always beleaguered in his elections. He always had to run tough When races. you own San Francisco and the west side of Los Angeles mm-hmm. and Manhattan and northern New Jersey, you're going you're gonna to own this real estate. It's like, right. it's like monopoly in that regard. And then part of that, though, I, I noticed that some of the districts that were pretty high up on those lists were also districts that had a lot of poor people. So John Lewis's district in Atlanta, Dan, Danny Davis in Chicago, mm-hmm. there were three or four of those kind of seats that jumped out at me at being the top of that list. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at more of the demographics then. And what I realized is that the two party coalitions are, uh, the Republicans more of a traditional kind of bell curve. Mm-hmm. If you look at different measures of elitism by income, by level of education, median home values, uh, income in general, all those different measures, um, even occupational, things like manufacturing employment or military careers. You, what you had in the, in the case of the Republican coalition or caucus were a concentration of districts full of uh, people with incomes in the middle ranges, people who did not go to grad school, did not drop out of high school, were somewhere in that middle. Uh, college degree category was a little bit mixed. But basically, um, you know, today if you look at it, the district's um, percentage of the district population with incomes between 35 and 100, which is a pretty good measure of a middle. Mm-hmm. Out of that 100 districts with the heaviest concentration of those households, 91 have right. Republicans. And that's a pretty big correlation. And when you start looking at other measures like that, yeah. um, median home values, if it's over 275,000, right. it's about three-quarters Democratic members representing those districts. If it's under 100, it's about three-quarters Democrats. And everyone in the middle there about 100 to 218, actually, is right. heavily Republican. Okay, so one problem is they just don't represent homogenous district Republicans and Democrats. What else mm-hmm. do they not have in common? Um, well, I think if you look at um, uh, the kind of districts, too. So if you have, um, I think it's about 8 or 10% manufacturing employment or more, mm-hmm. it's almost always a Republican seat. If the percentage of constituents who have served at any time in the military. So it's just any military service. So it mm-hmm. could be Vietnam era, Korean era, and so on. Right. Um, the more of those constituents you have, the more likely it's Republican. The fewer, the more likely it's a Democratic seat. There's, there's measures like that that give you a kind of a complexion of the kind of people who are working there, earning those middle incomes and mm-hmm. living in the, in the homes that are $130,000, $150,000, not seven hundred and fifty or a million, mm-hmm. which is where especially in the coastal areas, that we get a lot of concentrations of those kind of right. people. What about the members themselves, Mike, in terms of, let's say, life experience? If you'd gone to Congress in the late 1940s or 50s or 60s, a lot of the members would have had one thing in common, military service. They mm-hmm. would have fought in one of the either World War II or Korea. They would have been drafted at one point. They would have served. So at least that would mm-hmm. have been a point of connection. But in today's Congress, what is a point of connection? Are they are they all lawyers and MBAs, or are they all are they all college educations in common? Where do they come together in terms of being able to talk to each other? Oh, well, you know, I think the um, during the wave elections, you get an aberration there. You get a lot of people washing up in Congress who are there because of that of that political wave. Is it the obligatory guys? Who, I'm going to serve only four years, and we're going to clean up the place. Sort of, yeah. yeah, and that's when you get members who you know had run a pizza. Or, or had, exactly. you know, there was a point where there were something like three undertakers in Congress, um, who, by the way, have remarkable personal skills with with constituents, because they, if you think about it, they they get used to dealing with people. They've got to walk through people at the worst moment. Of exactly, their life. Yeah. and and there was, there was some members who were just astonishingly adept at that, and I couldn't figure it out why. And then I realized the one thing they had in common is that their families had, for a hundred years, run. Uh, you know, on funeral homes. Now, is it like the Godfather? Do they say, I'm ready to do you this great service? Just, <laughs> it's the other way around, too. I think exactly. it cuts both ways. But. It's funny, by the way, mm-hmm. how many senators end up in the same sand trap, which is after two terms and having promised they first ran, they'd only serve 12 years. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I've decided to stick around. I wrote a piece the other day about Orrin Hatch, you know, who was in the middle of this you know, drama in mm-hmm. Utah about whether or not he's going to run, and Hatch is 83 years old. He's the second oldest person in the Senate. He's been in Utah. It goes back to the 70s uh, in Utah, and he won his office, Mike, in 1976 by making longevity the other mm-hmm. guys. He said, "He said, what do you what do you call somebody who's been in Senate for 18 years? <laughs> you say, it's time to call it a day mm-hmm. go home. Right. So, but, yeah. he's, but he's a friend. So it's funny how much these guys are lifers. Yeah, but, you know, it's um, there's, there's a number who are lifers, but I think the toll that current service in Congress takes on members is starting to show up as well. It's not a pleasant way to spend your, your days. Okay, toll. There are a lot of ways to break down toll. There's the toll of mm-hmm. being in Washington versus your family being elsewhere if you either decide not to bring them here or just can't do it. Mm-hmm. There is the toll of dealing in a Congress, which is just probably not that fun on a daily basis because everything is a fight these days. One thing that's true, um, it's, it's probably the most um, uh, inartful political request to make in this environment, but mm-hmm. if you think about the power of, uh, of our checks and balances in, right. in our Constitution, the three branches were designed to be co-equal, mm-hmm. and each were given their unique authorities and powers. One thing you can say about Congress going back, really, it began, I think, in the, um, in the 90s with uh, the Republicans taking Congress, taking the House especially, is they've unilaterally given away a lot of those powers and authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it kind of for because it seems good, it's a good talking point on the campaign trail. But what they've done, and especially this is very evident during the last eight years when President Obama was in the White House, is they have they've given away the ability to be that co-equal branch. So here's one statistic. 1980, there were something like 2,000, just short of 2,000 professional committee staff in the House of Representatives. Fast forward to 2016, it was under 1,200. The tax code has become a whole lot more complicated than mm-hmm. the size and scope of what government spends money on, mm-hmm. expanded dramatically. All these things government does, all of which require a lot of oversight and a lot of attention and a lot of expertise, right. you have 40% fewer professional staff to handle the Article One branch of government's responsibilities mm-hmm. there. Um, the same is true of salaries. Salaries are frozen for the members, so in real dollars, it, you, can't, you almost can't make ends meet if you have a family, right. especially if you have to have a place to live in D.C. Mm-hmm. There's been a, one thing that that's you can almost chart it in recent years. There's been an explosion in one thing. The number of members of the House who sleep in their offices at night, right. which includes the Speaker and my old boss, the Majority Leader, mm-hmm. because where they they live, they have modest family, you know, levels of wealth, and having a home in Bakersfield or a home in Janesville, but also a place that's decent. Right. in Washington is too exorbitant. So yeah, they end up sleeping in the couch. Yeah, the group townhouse used to be the Fed, like four members yeah. would live together. And sometimes it'd be bipartisan. And so the Washington Post wrote a piece about how exactly. wonderful this you know, bipartisan <laughs> right. under a roof and all that. But now sleeping in the office. Hey, you mentioned the tax code. And mm-hmm. so this is part of the romantic view of Washington, why things can't get done. People look at the current debate over tax reform. And you know, unfortunately, we're doing this on December the 12th. And the mm-hmm. tax, the status of that is still in the outcome. By the time you're hearing this, it might have been, been solved. But people ask one question. Why can't we go back to 19? 1986, 1987, and do it the way they did it then. Just go over to the Irish Times and have a couple pitchers of beer and write something down on a napkin and go price it out and see if it <laughs> flies. It should be that simple, yes? It, well, it, um, I think it may be not that simple, but, but, that that, was but an, that's how it happened. The that last was a joyous right? epiphany, yeah. yeah jo- it, was a, with, it was a liquid lunch and mm-hmm. <laughs> taxes got fixed. And it's because you had people like Bill Bradley <clears throat> on the Senate Finance Committee, who was right. a Democrat. And Bob Packwood on the Republican Packwood side. from Oregon yeah. on the Republican side. Right who were willing to create a blood oath, they try to get something done that they both felt was advantageous for them and for their constituents. That's missing right now. When you start a process like this, where I think it was 45 Democratic senators sign a letter saying, here's our list of demands on any kind of product that comes out of a a reform process, they basically took themselves out of that game because their list of demands included several items that basically would mean no reform. So you, you, you can't, you know, when you have a situation now where um, the top 1% mm-hmm. of, of earners right. earn something like, I think it's 21% of all the income, but they pay about 40% of all right. the taxes. Um, if you cut, do a, a cut in taxes and that 1% is going to get less than that 40% that they currently, you know, shoulder, right. you're making the tax code more progressive. And 
um, at some point, 40 to 42 to 44, at some point, you're, you, you can't sustain it. But, Mike, the list of demands, that's political cover. You, that's your way of saying, I need a reason to explain why I did not vote for tax reform. And so you put your list of demands you know will not be met in there, and so you now have cover to do it. So that suggests a different mindset that existed, you know, that exists today versus 30 years ago. Yeah, but I don't think the kind of things that were being demanded back then were, um, were such that you couldn't negotiate your way right. into some middle ground. Um, here you also have a proliferation of very sophisticated special interest groups mm -hmm. that are welded, wedded maybe, welded is not a bad way to say it, to one or another provision in the code, mm -hmm. and it's a must-have. So they make that very, very clear to their member, you, have to, you can't give up on this. Right. And so the, the, the orchestration of those kinds of outside voices puts that much more pressure on the average member, mm -hmm. many, most of whom really don't have that intestinal fortitude mm -hmm. to resist those kinds of de demands. That they don't see the big picture that maybe if we do the right thing on, on, say, tax reform, we can generate growth back to where it used to be, 3 to 4% range, not sub-2% range. And that will in turn yield all these wonderful benefits in terms of job creation and upward advancement in a socioeconomic sense right. that's been missing the last 20 or so years. So they kind of define the terms of engagement in ways where you just can't go if you're on the other side of that of that divide. And what about former members, Mike? Um, I remember back in the late 80s um, seeing members retire and then suddenly they would pop up running the National Beer Council or something like mm -hmm. that. They would mm -hmm. just segue right into a special interest job as a lobbyist. Trent Lott made a lot of money mm -hmm. over the last decades uh, leaving the, his Senate post and now now logging and so forth. Is that another thing that did not exist as much 30 years ago now? The, the former members really kind of having a lot of skin in the game. It was maybe 30, but I don't think it existed 50 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, at some point in the 80s, it wasn't that unusual for a member to leave, mm -hmm. sometimes at the peak of their careers, right. and go into a, a very high-paying position running you know, the Motion Picture Association or maybe some ag sector group or healthcare industry group. Right. Um, Bill Gratison, I think, did that for health insurance plans. Uh, he was senior Republican on Ways and Means Committee that did a lot of that work uh, on health care. So it did happen repeatedly. Um, more recently, it still happens. I think now the norm is more for members to go to firms that have clients right. that are these various associations and so on. And the people that run the associations oftentimes are former staff. And the staff do this a lot. In some ways, maybe it's more common now for staff to just, um, you know, go directly from a senior position on the House or Senate mm -hmm. to a, a lobbying slot somewhere. And they take a year off as a cooling period, and then they go right into the game. Mm -hmm. And I go up there periodically uh, for different kinds of group meetings, and I'm always struck at how many people I walk run into. Right. What are you doing? And there's always some firm that has a generic Washington name, you know, some kind of uh, pathfinders or something, and they're the ones that have the clients, and and so they maybe cut out the middlemen and they just you know have a small group of people that used to all work for certain kinds of members. A lot of firms make sure they have both Republicans and Democrats, so they the firms ironically a whole lot more bipartisan. <laughs> so a good example of this is somebody who you probably worked with during Dick Army's days, and that would be Ed Gillespie. Sure. Well, I I remember, actually, I replaced Ed. I remember Ed yeah. back in the day mm -hmm. being a very aggressive press secretary for Dick Army. I'll tell you a funny Dick Army story, by the way. My late father uh, was involved in a very complicated marriage, and they decided to go see a marriage counselor. And the marriage counselor they went to, you're smiling, was Susan Army. Oh, really? Yes, wow. Dick Armey's wife. Yeah, yeah, I knew, knew her. Yeah. <laughs> and my father and I were talking one day at Congress. He said, I can stand watching everybody on Congress but one person. I said, who? He goes, Dick Armey. I said, why? He goes, so every time I see Dick Armey, I'm thinking how much money <laughs> I'm paying on parish council. <laughs> yeah, well, he was uh, – I was trying to be his communications director for a couple right. of years, and every time we did a Tuesday press briefing to right. talk about the week ahead on the House floor for the press, mm -hmm. uh, he inevitably would – recite the, the lyrics of some country western song. Yeah. Lower East Side of Manhattan did not expose me. That upbringing did not expose me to very many country western songs or the lyrics. And one time he was um, trying to explain what it was like to, to mediate between two subcommittee chairmen who were fighting over the jurisdiction of some bill. Mm -hmm. And he ended up saying, well, it's like one of my favorite country western songs. And the presses eagerly with their pads out waiting to write it down. The title of the song was, She Left Her Dear John on My John Deere. 
And they all started writing it down. And at the end of the press conference, after he walked out, they came up to me, is that a real song? And I'm looking at him thinking, you know where I grew up? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but every, every day, it was like that. That is very funny. I mentioned um, Ed because Ed worked for Dig Army. Ed went to then work with Haley Barber. Right. Right. They had a very, a very good money-making firm with that. Then Ed went to work in the Bush. And he White left, House. but he also went right. from Dick Army to the RNC, to the, the Republican RNC. National Committee, when Haley right. Barber was chair. Chair. Yeah. yeah. And he ended up um, doing the RNC one day, mm-hmm. and he worked in the Bush forty-three White House as a counsel. He goes on to run for the Senate in Virginia, and then goes on to run for governor of Virginia. Mm-hmm. He's kind of a swamp guy in that regard, even though he does technically move across the river, though I guess he's still one of the counties or whatnot. But mm-hmm. let's talk about 2017. Um, I was born here in Washington, D.C. I grew up across the river in Arlington and Alexandria. Um, as I try to explain to people, since I moved to California about 20 years ago, I know how to get from point A to point B in Washington. I just can't tell you what you're going to find when you get to point B. Mm-hmm. The town changes over time. It doesn't completely morph and become different, but it evolves. It's sort of like going to ancient Troy and finding mm-hmm. level after level of thing. With each administration, it takes on a different look and a different feel, and you see it in terms of restaurants. For example, Republicans have restaurants and Democrats have their taste, and those change with administrations. The town takes on a different look and feel depending who's in, in power. But one thing which is consistent, Mike, uh, as a friend explained to me one day, there are two uniforms in this town. There is a blue jersey and a red jersey. Mm-hmm. And you're on one of the two teams. But right now, the blue team kind of knows how it feels about the guy in the White House. The red team doesn't understand what's going on. But the town is just kind of uncertain as to what's happening here. It's, are you surprised at 2017 that this is just kind of, here we are in December 2017, and this, this sort of feeling of shock about the election still seems to continue. It seems like people are still trying to adjust, and people are still litigating the last election. Are you surprised that it's continued this long? No, because there was so much at stake. In a way, it's similar to the vitriol and the intensity that has accompanied judicial fights. And that came out in direct correlation with the extent to which the uh, highest court started claiming a role in a lot of things that courts never got involved in before. Suddenly, voters saw that the next person on the Supreme Court could make the difference in where their kid went to school or, or some issue that ought never to have been within but, the purview of, you of were, the court. And you were, but you were here in 2001 mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. we went through selected, not elected, and we went through a Supreme Court case to decide the president, and the thing wasn't settled until December, which caused a lot of, you know, people don't, can't appreciate really how crazy that situation is because now you had to fill up the government really fast in a short period of time. Right, right. But I think we probably let go of things earlier in 2001 than we did in 2017. It could be true. Yeah. yeah. So, but, so then what's the difference between then and now? Why Why is this still going on? Well, today? I still I come back to the – in part of it, it's emotional because the Clinton people, and I've talked to a lot of them on this, were – they knew what job they were supposed to be getting. At least they tell you. Yeah. I was going to be this or that. They had the plum book out and they already figured the, things out. And they had right. been assured by somebody high up that to them had the – it was the word of God, so they knew it was going to happen. Right. So their expectations were dashed in ways that were – cut to their core. And and don't forget, um, left of center folks, Democrats now, are uh, governments much more, they have a different relationship to government than do the people who want to see less of government. So people who go into Republican administrations tend to want to get in and get out. Mm -hmm. They they don't want to, um, they want to try to change the world when they go in and then they usually fail. Right. And they get disillusioned, and some of them become part of the swamp. Some of them just move on and get out of town. The Democrats, you know, they, they, on the Hill especially, they were there forever. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the titans of Congress when I was first starting out, like we were talking about before, their staff were 25, 35-year veterans, and they had much more fun and more power and so on, being constantly in a senior staffer on a committee mm-hmm. uh, for that period, rather than getting in and getting out and starting to run stuff. Mm-hmm. A couple of them had, had ways to plant people in various places. But mm-hmm. for the most part, to lose what, something you had counted on right. in a way that was offensive, like, who's this person that can possibly you know, beat Hillary Clinton? Right. And the thing about Hillary Clinton, I, don't, I know a lot of people who voted for her. I don't know anyone who liked her. I don't know any Democrat who actually was enthusiastically thinking she's great. Right. It was more, she's a vehicle for a lot of things I care about 
And if she gets elected, I can count on X, Y, or Z happening, and I can be part of that. And, and there was that emotional bond. It's ironically a calculation a lot of Republicans have made about Donald Trump, that I don't like him personally, right. but if he gives me 60% of what I want, that's 60% more than she would have given I was just going to get to that. I, yeah. I think that's, you know, fast forward from Inauguration Day to today, and that's what you see, especially when it comes to things that you have control over. The two most important ones would be uh, deregulating some of the um, actions, taking away some of the actions that President Obama and his appointees right. took in various agencies. And second is the court nominations, especially uh, Gorsuch on the Supreme Court, but also a lot of the, you know, you very rarely hear, you know, the libertarians like at Cato rhapsodizing, rhapsodizing about Trump right. the way they do when they start talking about his nominees to the circuit courts. So it's a, um, it's a mixed bag on the domestic front um, you, you get a fair number of areas where people are not, you know, shaking their heads saying, wow, I'm happier than I thought I was going to be on right. some of the policy developments and some of the appointees to these agencies. FCC right. is an example with uh, Pai, P-A-I, I forget his first name, who's now the chairman there. Right. He's, a, he's a rock star in the eyes of a lot of conservatives, and he's doing things already on net neutrality and other things that right. they, they're excited about. Pruitt at the EPA, same way. So you have um, areas where people are really happy uh, on the national security front, even the, the never Trump people on that side of the, those policy experts right. acknowledge that, that Matt, Matt, Jim Mattis is a wonderful selection to be secretary of defense, McMaster, good to be national security advisor. Um, and they think that these guys are the ones that to the extent Trump's not starting world war three, they, they don't credit Trump. They credit <laughs> some yeah. of his appointees that they like. So right. it's a, um, it is, it is a mixed bag. I'd argue that probably further unhinges the left, Mike, because now you have the left thinking, okay, the government's in safe hands because there are two military guys and a guy from a big oil company. Yeah, right. Over things. So right. I feel better. Or three if you include Kelly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So you you know how the world of think tanks works in Washington. You know how the work how the pill works as well. As you've watched the appointment process in 2017, talk about a blend of what's going on here because it seems to me you've got three camps here. You've got – People making the decision, is this good for my career or not to go in? Am I going to get the experience that I want in terms of what I want to do in my life? Maybe segue into something a little more lucrative. So do I want to go in and get that job? You're making, yeah, people are making the calculation that I do or don't want to be associated with this guy. And they have a third mm. group of people who maybe want to go in, but they either get caught in the process or they end up on somebody's list. Yeah, th- there are, some people fit into more than one of those yeah. categories too. Um, there's quite a few who have had a long stand. You know, they've been preparing themselves for a long time to serve in a certain agency at a certain level and right. look at the uh, the policy process from a different origination point than, say, when they served in Capitol Hill right. or in a think tank. So I think a lot of those people, unless they see that President Trump and people in the White House are overtly opposed to their values in that area, mm-hmm. they're saying, a lot of them say, I'd like to have a chance to serve and, and do that. And um, you, you get that from people on, in all different policy fields that I've noticed, national security not, as well as transportation or labor department or a tax policy, health care policy. Mm-hmm. A lot of people wanted to go into the health and human services department pr- primarily because of the effort to uh, repeal Obamacare. Right. And th- that pulled in a lot of folks from think tanks, a lot of folks from, you know, with different kinds of s- very specific policy expertise. So I think that's, that's a motivation, especially for younger people. Right. Um, the, the never Trumpers are definitely at sea because they, they're by definition, they're not going to really like what the democratic party wants to do. Uh-huh. They now alienated by as much the personality, if not the substance of the new president. Um, and so they can write vitriolic pieces and be and frustrated and try to create a way forward or try to revamp the coalition's right of center in some new new form, mm-hmm. but they're the ones I feel in some ways sorry for because they, you know, they, they they don't have a place to go right now. And if they were to form their own group, it would be minuscule in terms of of uh, numbers right now. There's you just know. not enough not in, enough there there to inside Washington. Like, yeah. I mean, in, in the electorate writ large, the dynamics are going to be somewhat different. There's a lot of Republicans that are frustrated with the president. I think in some ways. The folks who are most first to get off that ship are going to be are the ones who are just frustrated by his tweeting and and the nature of it. It's not presidential. It, it's every time he's about to make a gain, he undoes it with a two a.m. tweet. That kind of 
analysis and critique. Um, and I feel I've noticed that from a lot of folks who are, you know, who, who don't have elite positions in society. They just say, I'm an immigrant. I came here. I'm expecting this person to be presidential. That's one of the things I love about America. And he's not. And they're disappointed. So there's a variety of ways to see it and analyze it. Okay. This is the holiday season, so I'm going to play a little holiday lightning round with you around mm-hmm. Washington, D.C., if you're willing to play along. Let's start with the idea of Christmas. Uh, to the question of who's been naughty and nice, I think the naughty side is pretty apparent. It's a lot of them. Uh, here we are on December the 12th, and the story around town is that the Washington Post has a list of about 20 members of Congress who've got a big problem. So who knows what's going to happen in the next few weeks here in terms of more members stepping down. So let's put aside the naughty side, but let me ask you this, Mike. Who's been nice in 2017? Uh, it's a small, it's probably a much shorter list. Uh, I'd have to think about that for a while. I mean, there's, if anyone, if you're going to say anybody's nice, you're going to incite massive numbers of people saying, oh, that, that's horrible Good because, yeah. of, because of the divide we were, we were talking about. But, right. I mean, I think that, um, uh, you know, some of the, um, the folks who are trying to move the tax reform, mm-hmm. for example, that, that's, that's the huge item on the plate right now, have been... Um, you know, very concerned about putting things in the stockings of, you know, middle-income families, especially families with children, uh, in ways that other times have, have been they've never been across the finish line. So I th- I'd give him Kevin Brady, people like that, who is the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, and some of his allies, Pat Toomey, you know, Marco Rubio tried mm-hmm. to put those things in the stockings. And, um, and you can say, well, it, it's sort of like buying votes, but it's also giving them back more of their money. It's not giving right. them a check. It's really right. just saying... We can try to alleviate some of your tax burden so you can raise your families. And I think that, that would qualify. Okay. What are Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan want to find under the tree on December 25th? What's the best present they could get this year? A viable path to retaining the majorities. And that would involve some accomplishments. But if you, you know, a tax bill may or may not do it. There, mm-hmm. It was, someone made the, the very telling point that if a number of years in, uh, early in the uh, Obama years, um, no, I think it was during the Bush years, there was a, a tax cut that can't, took the form of a check that everyone got. A check. I think it took the payroll tax down by two points, percentage points, and right. people got a few hundred dollars in the mail. And when they were polled about it afterwards, I think it was 24% thought it was not a cut, it was an increase. 9% or 12% or whatever said it was a, a cut, and most people had no idea. Right. So it didn't, politically, it didn't have any resonance. The resonance is going to come if they can get their reforms through in the corporate side, lower the rates. Mm-hmm give businesses more ability to uh, deduct expenses and that sort of thing. If that goes through and and you see some reaction very quickly from the business sector and some job growth beyond what we're expecting and so on, I think then you can get uh, a pass. So they're going to want a tax bill that will promise more immediate positive results than something that yields results in 2025. Okay, next Christmas holiday category. This is December the 12th. This is the first night of Hanukkah. The celebration of lights, the celebration of Judah Maccabee. Maccabee translated into English means literally hammer. I think hammer, you think hammer. Who do you think? Not MC Hammer. You think Tom DeLay. Tom DeLay. The original <laughs> hammer. The OG hammer himself. Who are the hammers in this Congress? Mm. There's nobody with that personality in, in the Congress. I think Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. is someone who plays that role in the Senate. Um, but even his lieutenants are not, they're not the kind of people that are, uh, going to give you the Lyndon Johnson arm around the, the neck and, right. you know, squeeze. You're not going to get that. And turn, and turn farther in the men's room and turn off the heat yeah. in the office, that kind of and stuff. And yeah. in the Trump, Trump, but he does it indirectly. He does it from a distance. He doesn't necessarily do it in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Trump and McConnell are the two that seem to be the, the alpha engagers when it comes to trying to get someone for the final play to get their vote. Is there also the factor that we have term limits now for committees? So you don't have that venerable guy on the Hill who's been running energy and commerce or armed services for 25 or 30 years. It does play a role. I mean, you do end up with uh, the lame duck dynamic in those last two years. Do you like that concept? I hear especially some of our defense fellows, they don't care for it because they feel that they run into a lot of higher-up people in the committees who just don't know a lot about the military. It's a – yeah, that's a good point. It's a mixed blessing and it – it, you hate to say this, but it depends. It depends right. on who you're talking about. If if you have a member who's who was born to be chairman of the Armed Services Committee, right. and you're going to artificially get rid of them after six years, what are you losing there? You know, um, the ex ex chairman's club is not the most distinguished group of members. They they right. te- either you get out or if you stick around, you're going to languish a bit. 
Um, so you, you want someone, you don't want necessarily to kick Henry Hyde when he was member. You know, he was chairman of judiciary, chairman of foreign, foreign affairs. You don't want to kick him off those committees artificially because he was one of the great members of that generation. Right. Insightful, with, had a lot of wisdom, was able to talk to people across the aisle. Um, so, but the other times, you, you get a member in, as chairman and you can't, you're counting the days. You, you want them to come and go. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any – I think all these reforms tend to, with a little bit of hindsight, a little bit of experience, you tend to see both the good and the bad in them. You know the motivation, mm-hmm. but it doesn't – the law of unintended consequences plays a very big role here. Okay. newton because Isaac Newton's birthday is December 25th, so there are people who celebrate newton instead of Christmas. <laughs> who are the smart guys on Capitol Hill? If you had to point me to – here are the big thinkers. Here are the brains you need to talk to. Who would you point me to? Oh, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan is, is a brilliant um, policy wonk right. who happens to be speaker. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, a, and a good friend of the Hoover Institute. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, Pat Toomey is one of the most impressive members I've ever encountered. Really? Why so? Um, he, I'm, when I worked with him, I first met him when he was a candidate mm-hmm. and then in the House. Um, he has an ability to understand issues in very great detail and communicate them in ways that most members don't. If you remember, the district he represented in Pennsylvania was uh, a kind of a working class uh, manufacturing heavy district in the middle part of the state, right. you know, Lehigh Valley area, I think it was. Uh, he had Bethlehem, places like that. And, um, and he did not shy at all away from being a robust free market, pro-free trade, uh, limited government, small, lower taxes, flat tax kind of a uh, member, like a Jack Kemp, a Ronald Reagan, a Paul Ryan. And he won easily in that district for six or eight or ten years. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back and he runs in the Senate and he, he did the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Ryan ran that kind of race in his district, which is not much different. It's very similar in many ways. Which, right. And I often wondered why those two experiences have not yielded more members saying, hey, if they, if they can do it, I'm going to study that and I want to replicate right. that. Um, those are two that I, w- I would point to. Um, who else is, is, uh, is uh, off the charts? I've often always liked um, – um, Mac Thornberry, who chairs the, the Armed Services Committee, I think he's he's one of these guys who grew up on a ranch in, in Amarillo, Texas, right. and he's quiet, so you can mistake that for not being bright, but he's been a great member for over 20 years now, and he's been leading that committee very well, I think. Now, your old boss, Kevin McCarthy, he is mm-hmm. he is not usually on a list of intellectuals. I'm not disparaging him in saying that he's not smart. He is a smart guy. I, I, I he, has the best he has emotional, the best emotional and people skills. Yeah, his emotional IQ is 200-plus, right. and he knows where to get right. the, in, the what he needs from the, um, the, the, the uh, intellects and so on. He, he's got a great sense of how to select issues and select uh, agendas and put them together. He's, he's really fun to work for. But he's not, he's not a policy wonk the way Paul Ryan is. So you, right. you're the question, if you ask the question in a different way, I think McCarthy would be at the top of the list. We talked about the undertaker skills. Is part with Kevin McCarthy's skills the deli skills? Could be. Because he ran a deli back in Bakersfield. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's, um, I think his, it's also his personality. I mean, he's a, a buoyant Irish Well, I'm just guy. thinking a guy who runs a store and comes out from behind the counter and, and to, talks to everybody and yeah. wants to know how everything is going. And has know. to deal with the government because they want him to take his signage down or something, you know. Okay. And, all right, our final holiday category, mm-hmm. Festivus, Seinfeld. For the rest of us? For the rest of us, Festivus for the rest of us, very good. <laughs> All right, two parts of Festivus. Number one, feats of strength. Who are the strong people in Washington, D.C. these days? Um, that's a good question. I mean, Mattis. Jim Mattis. Right off the top, I have to say Jim Mattis. Why um, so? Why so? Why Jim Mattis? Because he, um, everything I've read reinforces this, but haven't had a chance to get to know him a little bit. That's how I feel. He'll tell you what you need to hear, mm-hmm. even if it's not what they want to hear. And I think right. that role he plays in this administration is uh, priceless and important because I think he has the president's ear. The president respects him. And he's often going to tell the president, I know what your heart's saying, do A, B, or C, but really, here's why we should do something different. And he has a, an ability to convey that. I think he's he's by far I think, I think also in a town that offers indigestion just on a 24-hour basis, he is comfort food. Mm-hmm. If you will, just you hear him talk and you watch him and you think, okay, here's a good The other two I, I would mention before, I think Pruitt at EPA. Pruitt and EPA. Yeah, he's been um, 
on the receiving end of a lot of abuse, but he's moving forward and doing things that are consistent with the law. The abuse is over his views on climate change, right? That he's seeing as kind of a just a sort guy of, from Oklahoma yeah, but, but just doesn't get it. At a more mundane level, it's really the specific legislative uh, regulatory initiatives that right. the last administration took that were outside the scope of what the right. various environmental laws were meant to do. They never were meant to cover certain initiatives. And the last administration just thought, well, we can't get anything through Congress. We can't right. get new legislation, so we're going to do it on our own. And he's mm-hmm. been, to his credit, um, going through them, uh, you know, one after another and putting them right, putting right. them straight. Okay. The other quality of uh, Festivus, uh, Frank Costanza's line, the airing of grievances. What does Frank Costanza say? I got a lot of problems with you people. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could do a separate <clears throat> podcast on grievances in Washington, mm-hmm. but my, in a town full of just everybody complaining about everything, who has a legitimate gripe? Does the Trump, is it the Trump White House saying that, Congress just doesn't respect the president and just won't don't do what we want? Is the Congress saying that this guy down the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue just doesn't understand how we work and won't come work with us? Is it the Democrats with legitimate gripe, the Republicans versus the Democrats, the media, people who don't like the media? Who's actually, who do you think has a legitimate beef here? The voters. The voters. The yeah. actually send these people to office. Well, the voters, um, I think they should be able to expect something more mm-hmm. out of what we're what we're dealing with. There's a lot of big issues that are unresolved that need to be addressed, and you can imagine trying to resolve them in ways that will be a middle ground. You you can find that, and there's no capacity these days to do that. So I would put the voters at the top. But the voters send a status quo Congress back. They send Republicans back to Congress, keep the the Congress in Republican hands, and then they send this person to Washington who is completely Mm anti-Washington. So to me it's kind of gas and brake, if you will, in that they want – they want Capitol Hill to be the same in terms of who's in control, but they put a complete wild card in terms of, in terms of the White House, in terms of how the two get together. But are you? But the voters, you're, you think, have the grief here? Yeah, because I mean, if you go back to you mentioned earlier, Mo Fiorina's book, yes. um, some of his research, you know, addresses the question of whether the voting um, population has divided into these two extremes. Right. And his point is actually no. But, but what happens is you get a lot of people who occupy some kind of middle mm-hmm. ground who. Um, or have no choice but to vote for somebody because of the, the dynamic of uh, party primaries. Right. Well, you get the most uh, left-leaning or right-leaning person usually winning in those primaries, and on election day, that's the only choice you have. And I think that those people have a lot to uh, you know, complain about if, if they don't feel like there's someone who can at least talk. I mean, everyone in life has to deal with people they don't agree with and figure out some way to get along. Right. And that should be true of Congress as well. And instead, you play these these games, and both on the right and the left, mm-hmm. we're going to go through something soon. The next time, the the uh, maybe later on in this, this month, about ten days, when we have another government shutdown scenario, right? And we, there's a list of un, you know, nego- non-negotiable demands on one side and the other, and and you know, it's it's, it's not the way. When you work up there, what you you can only deal with so many things at a time. And the more the more oxygen that gets sucked out of the room dealing with with must pass last minute cliff situations like debt limit and a, a continued resolution appropriations bill is going to run out and the government will shut down. That takes away the ability of people in that institution to do long range thinking, to look right. around the corner, to start thinking creatively, to request in, information from people and, you don't get it from people normally. Don't, and people don't appreciate that enough. You would hear, for example, um, in the past few weeks, some talk would start about Rex Tillerson leaving the state and then uh, Pompeo switching from CIA to, to state and then um, um, Tom Cotton going from the Senate over to CIA. You'd hear very quietly that the person who didn't want this was Mitch McConnell. Why? Because now he's looking at nomination battles on top mm-hmm. of everything else he has to deal with. So he has only so much in the time of the day to do so many stuff, so he just can't put more stuff on his plate. It's true. One of the things you have to understand about Congress, especially end of the year in an odd-numbered year, but also especially the last um, few months of the even-numbered year when they're in session, is that time on the floor becomes a commodity that increases in value as the time winds down toward the end of the two-year Congress. Mm -hmm. And if you can credibly put on the table a strategy to the leadership saying, hey, if you, if you want to move a certain bill, we're going to eat up two, three full days of floor time. Right. They oftentimes just pull the bill rather than give up three days of floor time. They move to something else that where they might get it done. So th- th- we're in that stage right now, and that's where you get the, the non-negotiable demands become uh, paramount. 
and, and right. it crowds out the ability to get other things done. So we are going to get through this shutdown, maybe, maybe or not. We will get through the tax reform battle, maybe or maybe not. We will get through the holiday seasons, maybe, maybe not. The calendar will flip to 2018, and we'll be now in the countdown to a midterm election. Mm -hmm. Congress will come back in January. The president will, in February, I imagine, or maybe January, part of February, go up and give a State of the Union address. But Republicans on the Hill, Mike, are going to have to make a calculation. What did we do right? What did we do wrong in 2017? What should we be doing differently in 2018? And what would your advice be? Well, the first thing is, I, if I were in the Senate, there's two calendars in the Senate, the legislative and the executive calendar. The executive calendar is where you deal with nominations mm -hmm. and confirmations. And I would, I would look at um, the, the courts. That's something entirely within their control if they have more than 50 votes. And I would ha if I were Mitch McConnell, I would have a strategy to switch to the executive calendar whenever, evenings, weekends, and just process as many of the right. nominees as you can um, in sure. a credible way. You have to process through the committee, but when it gets to the floor, it's a done deal because you can't filibuster. The, right. Anymore, you, you just need right. a simple majority, right. but you can still eat up a lot of floor time. So right. you have to be willing to say, yeah, you guys are going to be here at nights, you guys are going to be here weekends, but if at the end of the, of the say, by the end of September, mm -hmm. you can look around and say, well, we confirmed every, you know, we filled every opening on the bench. That we that's reasonable, mm -hmm. you can take that to the to your base and say, okay, this is a big accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, is the tax bill pretty much needs to happen mm -hmm. in one way or another. And <clears throat> I think when you look at it right now, if you preserve the side on the corporate side, which we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. w which has a lot of that pro growth potential, uh, wh where you see all the politics playing out is on the individual side. Mm -hmm. And there's one or two things you might get. One thing about the tax bill that they probably want to get for future. If you increase the standard deduction, doubling it the way they propose to, the percentage of people who, f who have to itemize, which now is between 25 and 30 percent nationwide, mm -hmm. will drop to about 6 percent. That means that 94 percent of people who file tax returns will never have to encounter all those third rail tax fights. Right. They will not worry about mortgage interest deductions. They will not worry about state and local deductions and charitable deductions. If you want to come back two or three years later, with round two of tax reform, and you have that environment where in some states it's not six, it's four or three or two percent who mm -hmm. actually itemize. Politically speaking, it's like public choice theory. Right. Politically speaking, you're, you should be able, as a politician, to confront mm -hmm. some of these third rail radioactive issues right. um, in a way that you can't when f maybe 35 or 40 percent of your constituents are grappling with that or depend upon it and have right. shaped their lives around it. You know, <clears throat> so I think that if that gets through, you're setting the stage in, the, in you know, 2020 for a real big major t tax reform 2.1 or 2.0. Okay, final question. We are sitting here in the Hoover uh, Institution's D.C. office. We're at uh, 14th and New York Avenue. It's a very short walk over to Treasury, to the White House, to OMB, Commerce, the Justice Department. We're right in the middle of the heart and soul of the executive branch of government. You can hop in a cab or an Uber, and it's not that long to get up to Capitol Hill and go to your old stomping grounds. What should Hoover be doing here in Washington? What What is Hoover's role going to be here in 2018? Well, we had a group of our top economists come up here early November mm -hmm. and spent a day and a half meeting with all the top officials, pretty much in executive branch, in the White House, Treasury, and so on, top-level people, but also on Capitol Hill. Right. Senators, groups, large groups of members, chairman of the committees and leaders, and so on to d walk them through what we knew at the time about the, uh, the contours of tax reform, and they were identifying, basically it was a tutorial, like what are the essential elements of, of tax reform that will lead to more economic growth and job creation, right. and what are the things you want to avoid? And they gave them a very you know, direct um, and nonpartisan assessment of where the good and the bad and the ugly w were in those drafts, and answered a lot of questions, and it was clear that that's a vacuum we were filling, that right. the members had been getting lobbied by people with a particular interest, but they had not been exposed to people who were at the level of former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors of the White House, top tax lawyers in the country who teach in law school and so on, mm -hmm. um, who could bring their expertise to bear. That's the role we play, that we can come in in a nonpartisan, independent way and in sort of a just-the-facts-ma'am style right. assess the good, the bad, and the ugly, and try to educate them and answer their questions and give them more information than they would get from any of the other kind of meetings they typically get. And I, I know that firsthand because there's a 
there is a, it's an arid desert out there when it comes to real serious uh, meetings like that. Right, so we'll be doing more of the same in 2018. Yes, yeah, in, a, in a wide range of, of areas. That sounds good. Mike mm-hmm. Frank, great talking to you. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Convince your friends to give us a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover Fellows to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. Mike, if somebody wants to sign up in for events at the Hoover DC office, how do they how do they get on the there's list? There's a there's a D, Hoover DC place on the Hoover site, so we can so just click on that and look for the Hoover DC office, and you can sign up for our event notices and and a weekly email and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.